If you would like to turn in your Bibles once more to the book of Obadiah. Recall from this morning that Obadiah is written shortly after the Babylonian invasion of the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 B.C. He is writing to the Edomites, Israel's distant cousins and neighbors to the southeast. Edom is kicking the proverbial man while he's down, capturing fleeing Judeans and selling them as prisoners of war to the Babylonians. God has already promised in the portion that we read this morning that he's going to bring justice upon Edom for their wickedness. And now, as we read the rest of the prophecy, we're going to receive more details about what this justice will look like. And it's a lot bigger in scope than we might initially expect. If you are medically able, would you please stand with me as we read verses 15 to 21 of Obadiah. We'll finish out the prophecy. Here we have the public recitation of the inerrant word of God, beginning at Obadiah, verse 15. The day of Yahweh draws near upon all nations. Just as you have done, so it will be done to you. Your deeds will be returned upon your head. For just as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually, guzzle it down, and be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion there will be deliverance, and Zion will be holy. The house of Jacob will possess its dispossessors. The house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau stubble. They will light them ablaze and consume them, and there will be no survivor left to the house of Esau. For thus has Yahweh spoken. The Negev will possess Mount Esau. The foothills will possess the Philistines. They both will possess the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilad. The exiles of the Israelite company, which are among the Canaanites as far as Tzarfath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, which are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. The redeemed will ascend Mount Zion to judge Mount Esau, and the kingdom will belong to Yahweh. Thus is the reading of the word of the Lord. You all may be seated. Now just to telegraph where we're going here, because quite a bit of this passage is, is obscure. A lot of the things we're about to talk about concern things that are going to happen in Obadiah's distant future. And this is a general rule of thumb. Anytime that the Old Testament gives us a glimpse into the future, whether that future is the New Testament or even further to the end of time, automatically things become a lot more complicated. So before we dive into the weeds of figuring out what this text is telling us, I want to give you the bottom line up front. Obadiah 
is talking about two events at the same time. First, the impending destruction of Edom, and then the later conquest of all the earth through the proclamation of the gospel. This passage will be helpful to us because, number one, it comforts us with a reminder of God's gracious forgiveness when we fall short, and number two, it motivates us to action for the sake of God's kingdom. So that's where we're ultimately going to end up. That's where we're heading. But now let's begin diving into the weeds and trying to figure out what in the world is this mess all about. So in order to understand what these last seven verses of Obadiah are saying, we have to pause and zoom out for a little bit to talk about an important theological concept that we see in verse 15. Obadiah starts off by saying, the day of Yahweh, or the day of the Lord, is near. This phrase, (coughs) excuse me, is a technical term that's used especially in the prophets to refer to periods of time when God brings judgment, usually in the form of military conquest, against an entire nation for their wickedness. Just about any time in the Old Testament when you see God bringing judgment against a nation can be described as a day of Yahweh, a day of the Lord. And a day of the Lord can be aimed at anyone. It can be aimed at the Israelites themselves. It can be aimed at the enemies of Israel. Or in a few cases, it can even refer to something that's going to happen in the distant future. And that's always a little more complicated. But put a pin in that last one, because we're going to come back to it in a little bit. Let's take a look at a couple of examples of days of Yahweh coming upon Israel themselves. First with the northern kingdom of Israel, where in Amos chapter 5, beginning at verse 18, we hear this. Woe to you who long for the day of Yahweh. What will it be like for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of Yahweh be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? We likewise see the same phrase aimed at the southern kingdom of Judah in Zephaniah chapter 1. Beginning at verse 4, Yahweh says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the residents of Jerusalem. I will cast off every vestige of Baal from this place, the names of the pagan priests along with the Israelite ones. Those who bow down and worship on the rooftops to stars in the sky, those who bow and pledge loyalty to Yahweh, but also to Milcom, that's a Canaanite deity. And those who turn back from following Yahweh, who do not seek or inquire of him, all of you be silent in the presence of Yahweh God, for the day of Yahweh is near upon you. By contrast, here are a couple of prophecies where the day of Yahweh, the day of judgment, is aimed at people other than Israel. First, beginning with Egypt, we see in Ezekiel chapter 30, a day is near, a day belonging to Yahweh is near. It will be a day of clouds, a day of doom for the nations. A sword will come against Egypt, and there will be anguish in Cush when the slain fall in Egypt, and its wealth is taken away and its foundations demolished. We likewise have a promise of destruction for the Babylonians in Jeremiah chapter 50. 
Her young men will fall in her public squares. All the warriors will perish in that day. This is Yahweh's declaration. Behold, I am against you, arrogant one. This is the declaration of Yahweh, God of armies. For your day has come, the day when I will punish you. The arrogant will stumble and fall with no one to pick him up. I will set fire to his cities, and it will consume everything around him. Most of these judgment oracles that we see scattered throughout the Old Testament were fulfilled relatively quickly. Usually only a few decades passed between when God first declared judgment was coming and when it did eventually come. It never took more than a century in most cases. But there are a small handful of prophecies that were always understood as being more long-term. They were never going to be fulfilled until long after the prophet's own lifetime. One of the last and most powerful, uh, most famous of such long-term prophecies can be found in Malachi chapter 4, where God says, Behold, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of Yahweh comes. Now, 400 years later, 400 years after Malachi, in the days of Jesus, um, the Messiah confirms in Matthew chapter 11 that John the Baptist is indeed the fulfillment of this Elijah passage. Uh, John the Baptist is the Elijah figure, not in a Hinduistic reincarnational sense, but in the sense that there are a lot of literary connections between the two. Um, Elijah and John the Baptist are both hairy, they both live outside of um, proper society out in the wilderness. They are both spokesmen for God who are unpopular with corrupt kings. That's the idea, is that there are a lot of literary, literary parallels between them, if I can get the word out. Now, sure enough, Malachi was right. Forty years after John the Baptist, the Elijah figure shows up on the scene, another day of Yahweh happens, when judgment falls upon the nation of Israel, um, the, the nation of Rome comes and destroys the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The New Testament even picks up on the themes and literary patterns of all these previous days of judgment so that the New Testament authors look back on all of these other passages that we've already been talking about, and then they bring that template forward to talk about the final day of Yahweh, the day of final judgment when all justice is rendered and all is made right, when King Jesus returns victorious over the powers of darkness. We have an example of this in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 5, when Paul says, You, the believers, were enriched in him, in Jesus, in every way, in all speech and all knowledge, in this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, that final day of Yahweh when King Jesus returns. So returning now to Obadiah, we can now understand when we are told in verse 15 that another day of Yahweh, another day of judgment is coming against Edom for her transgressions. Verse 15, the day of Yahweh draws near. This morning, 
we saw that this coming, or excuse me, we saw this coming day of judgment described in vivid detail in verses 5 through 9 of Obadiah, where we're told that it's something like this. This is the degree to which destruction is coming for Edom. If thieves came to you, if marauders by night, how ravaged you would be, wouldn't they steal only what they wanted? If grape harvesters came to you, wouldn't they leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be pillaged and his hidden treasures searched out. Everyone who has a treaty with you will drive you to the border. Everyone at peace with you will deceive and conquer you, and those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will be unaware of it. In that day, declares Yahweh, will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those, uh, <clears throat> and those who understand from Mount Esau? Timon, your warriors will be terrified so that everyone from the hill country of Esau will be destroyed by slaughter. Now, these promises of national devastation did indeed come to pass just a few years after Obadiah said that they would. Just a couple of decades after Obadiah, in the year 553 BC, the Babylonians, led by King Nabonidus, came back and they invaded the Edomites this time. Not Israel or Judah, but Edom. Now, fortunately for us, Nabonidus chronicles his military conquests that, uh, that he uh, partook in over the course of his reign. And this tablet that we see here has survived to the modern day to tell us that in the third year of his reign, in the month Kislev, the king mustered his army and they encamped against Adumu. That's how you pronounce Edom uh, in the Babylonian language. And he defeated the army. So I want to park on this text for a moment because there's something really important that can be said about this text with regard to apologetics, that is, defending your faith. There's a common assumption in Western culture that I'm quite frankly tired of that says that almost none of the events recorded in the Bible actually happened. None of the people recorded in the Bible were real people who ever existed. Secularists are so prejudiced against Christianity that they not only deny the supernatural elements of this book, but they even deny the basic existence of the people that are recorded in it. Now, such an extreme position betrays not only an enormous bias on their part, but it also demonstrates an ignorance, perhaps a willing one, of the relevant historical and archaeological data. I mentioned the Kuntilat Ajrud pottery from earlier this morning. That and the Nabonidus Chronicle here are just two of the many, many independent historical confirmations that together make the overwhelming argument that the scriptures are historically reliable. You may not like the supernatural elements of it, but you cannot deny that the events recorded in this book truly took place. So the point that I want to make, for those of you here who either may be struggling with doubts of your own or who feel intimidated about evangelism, either way, the point I want to make for you is this. To not let your non-believing family, friends, coworkers, associates, etc., don't let them intimidate you into silence. History and evidence are on our side in this conversation. Moving on, though. 
There are some parts of Obadiah's prophecy that now might strike us as a little confusing. Up until this point, uh, verses 1 through 14 that we went through this morning, uh, they all seem to be talking about something happening in Obadiah's own lifetime, about 500 years uh, and change before Jesus. We're talking about Edom, its destruction, all of these things that are going to take place while Obadiah is still alive. And there are some parts of verses 15 to 21 that likewise seem to be focused on Edom, but then there are other parts of it that don't. For example, in verse 18, the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire and the house of Joseph a burning flame, but the house of Esau will be stubble. Jacob will set them on fire and consume Edom. Therefore, no survivor will be left to that house. Likewise, in verse 19, people from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. And yet there are also some very strange qualifiers in this passage as well. What are we to make of these? For example, in verses 15 and 16, we're told that the day of Yahweh is near against all nations. As you, Edom, have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. That's strange. What, what's going on there? What about verses 19 and 20? We're told, people from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. Those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. The Philistines haven't been mentioned up until this point. Why are they being brought into the conversation? They will possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria, while Benjamin will possess Gilad. The exiles of the Israelite company among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. So these two verses add to the strangeness of the all nations talk, because these two verses, 19 and 20, they follow a basic pattern of X will possess Y. And in each case, the X is talking about the southern kingdom of Judah. And each Y is talking about of one of the various enemies of the Jews in the nations surrounding the Jewish nation. So what verses 19 and 20 are effectively saying is that Judah will possess Edom, the Philistines, the northern kingdom of Israel, on and on. So what's going on here? Obadiah seems to be talking out both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, this coming day of Yahweh that he's been talking about seems to be focused just on Edom, but at the same time, it also seems to include many nations, perhaps even the entire world. The technical term for what Obadiah is doing here is amphiboly. Now, that's the fancy word that theologians use when they want to convince you that they're smart. But it has a pretty simple definition. What it basically means is any time that a text has more than one meaning at the same time when a single text has more than one meaning at the same time. Now, this might initially sound strange to us, to us, excuse me, but we actually use amphiboly in our daily lives more often than we might think. One of the most common modern examples of amphiboly is dad jokes. 
Right around the time that our son Elijah was born, Catherine bought for me a book of exceptionally bad dad jokes, probably one of the greatest regrets of her life. And here are just a few of those dad jokes that you can find in this book. How did the hipster burn his tongue? He drank his coffee before it was cool. I would avoid the sushi if I were you. It's a little fishy. A steak pun is a rare medium well done. The effectiveness of these jokes and other ones like them depend on uh, their ability to use multiple possible meanings for the same word, phrase, or idea at the same time. Biblical poetry and prophecy oftentimes does something similar. But the main difference is that whereas dad jokes use amphiboly for the purpose of really corny humor, biblical and especially Old Testament amphiboly uses it to illustrate something important in the future by comparing it to something that's happening in the present right now. So Obadiah is still speaking primarily to the Edomites about their destruction in his own context, in his own day, more than 500 years before Jesus. However, he is also using this occasion, he is using amphiboly in these few verses, to also bring a word of comfort to the exiled Jews by making a comparison between Edom's day of Yahweh, their day of destruction in the near future, and comparing it with something similar that is going to happen in the more distant future, on the final day of Yahweh, when King Jesus returns. Now, how is this going to be a word of comfort to the Jews who are exiled in Babylon? In two primary ways. First, there we go, God is already offering them hope for a return from exile and a restoration of relationship. Consider this. Obadiah is writing in the years immediately after Babylon comes and virtually destroys the southern kingdom. The dust has barely settled from the battle. The great majority of Jews who even survived the war are exiled as slaves in Babylon, severed from their inheritance, severed, so they think, from their God forever with no hope for the future. But God is so gracious and so kind that he doesn't even let them stew in their misery for a little while. Almost immediately, he throws them a lifeline. Verse 17, he says, There will be deliverance on Mount Zion, and Zion will be holy. The house of Jacob will possess its dispossessors. He likewise says in verse 21, Saviors, that is, those who have been redeemed from the exile, will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, and the kingdom will belong to Yahweh. So they have almost immediately this promise that their suffering will not last forever. But the second element of comfort in this message is greater still. Verse 18, the house of Jacob will be a blazing fire, but the house of of Joseph, a burning flame. Now, in contexts like these where you've got these two 
designations of Israel side by side, parallel like this, the house of Jacob, the house of Esau, or excuse me, the house of uh, Joseph, in those contexts, these are referring to the two kingdoms. Uh, Specifically, the house of Jacob is the southern kingdom of Judah. The house of Joseph is the northern kingdom of Israel. This, in Obadiah 18, is one of a handful of Old Testament prophecies that tell us that the northern and southern kingdoms will one day be reunited under the Messiah. Another example, quite possibly the most important passage that has to do with this idea, is found in Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning at verse 15. The word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, take a single stick and write on it belonging to Judah, and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it, belonging to Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. Then join them together into a single stick, so that they become one in your hand. When your people ask you, won't you explain to us what you mean by these things? Tell them, this is what Yahweh God says, I am going to take the stick of Joseph in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes associated with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah. I will make them into a single stick so that they become one in my hand. When the sticks you have written on are in your hand and in full view of the people, tell them this, that Yahweh God says, I am going to take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king, that's the Messiah, will rule over them all. They will no longer be two nations and will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. There we go. They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols, their abhorrent things, and all their transgressions. I will save them from all their apostasies which, by which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David, the Messianic king, will be king over them, and there will be one shepherd over them all. So Obadiah, in verse 18, contributes to this grand vision of the reunification of the kingdoms, and he even goes a step further than that. Remember the formula X will possess Y from verses 19 and 20. People from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau, etc., etc. So, not only will the two kingdoms, the north and the south, be reunified one day into the single kingdom of Israel that it was always meant to be, but they will even expand beyond their original borders and begin extending their influence into the surrounding nations. What a wonderful vision of the future this is. Except, if you interpret this passage in a strictly ethnic sense, it never happened. It still has not happened up to this day. The Jews of the southern kingdom did indeed return to their land in 538 BC. But the northern kingdom was never restored nor did the two kingdoms ever reunite. In fact, quite the opposite happened. The Israelites from the northern kingdom were almost entirely wiped out 150 years before Obadiah, when the Assyrians came and destroyed them. 
or very nearly destroyed them. The vast majority were either killed in the war or were shipped off into remote regions of the Assyrian Empire, where they assimilated into the culture and essentially vanished. The few Israelites that were left behind blended religiously and ethnically with the foreigners that the Assyrians uh, then shipped in because nature abhors a vacuum. And the religiously blended descendants later known as the Samaritans, became the most bitter rivals of the Jews of the New Testament period. But this is not to say that Obadiah's prophecy of forgiveness, redemption, reunification, and expansion of the kingdom failed. That's not at all what happened. It is simply to say that when Jesus does come onto the scene, he brings fulfillment in a way that most people weren't expecting. And that's usually how he operates, so we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus begins the kingdom of God on earth, and his final instruction to his disciples before he ascends to the Father is that they expand the kingdom of God to all the corners of the earth by making disciples, to fundamentally reverse the scattering of the nations at the Tower of Babylon, or at the Tower of Babel, excuse me, and to draw all nations to come back to worship the one true God of Israel. He says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he being Jesus, this is right before he ascends, he tells the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in all of Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. The rest of the book of Acts documents the disciples' earliest efforts at precisely this goal. And it's interesting to note that the structural progression of Acts as a whole follows exactly what Jesus said they would do. Chapters 1 through 7 are all about the gospel proliferating just among the Jewish people, the southern kingdom of Judah. But then in verses 8 through 9, it begins a transition where the gospel spreads beyond the boundaries of Judah and begins going to quasi-Jewish people. This includes the Ethiopian eunuch, who was a diaspora Jew living um, in exile, and then most importantly, the Samaritans, the descendants of the northern kingdom. And those people were brought to believe in the Messiah as well. And then finally... Beginning in chapter 10 and going all the way to the end of the book of Acts, you have the gospel going even further than that, starting with Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and eventually spreading all the way until chapter 28, when Paul is in Rome, the very center of the world, the very center of the empire at that point in time, and he is spreading the gospel in this place, this hub where all of the world meets, and the message is sure to go to all the corners of the earth. That work has continued on for 2,000 years until this very day, and it will continue to go on until our Lord returns, whenever that may be. The northern and southern kingdoms were indeed reunited under the one Davidic king, just like Obadiah, Ezekiel, and similar passages said they would be. They, that is the northern and the southern kingdom, the kingdoms, the Jews and the Samaritans, and Gentiles too, 
we're all united by a common love for, a common submission to Jesus of Nazareth, Messiah, God incarnate, and King. All of the previous history between the two kingdoms, all of the bad blood, all of the fighting, all of the bloodshed, all of the prejudice, none of that mattered anymore. The blood of Jesus had cleansed them of all of their guilt before God, and it demanded that they love each other, just as Jesus loves the church. Once more, we come to the so what portion of the message. We've invested the time to understand the larger point that Obadiah is making in verses 15 to 21. Although, like I said at the beginning, any time the Old Testament gives us a window into the future, it automatically makes things more complicated. But we have persevered. We have made it through the weeds, and we now have come out the other end with a better understanding of what exactly it is that God was promising through Obadiah, both to Edom in the near future and to Judah in the more distant future. But now comes the obvious question. What does any of this have to do with me? Well, let's return to the bottom line up front that we began with. This passage is helpful to us for two reasons, two primary reasons anyway. Number one, it comforts us with a reminder of God's gracious forgiveness when we fall short. And number two, it motivates us to action for the sake of God's kingdom. Regarding point number one, recall that God had warned the southern kingdom for hundreds of years to repent of their rebellion before he finally brought justice against them that they had been earning for all that time. He finally brought the Babylonians against them in 586 BC. And not only did God almost immediately provide comfort to the Jewish people, not only did he almost immediately tell them that their exile would not last forever, but within just 50 years, he held himself true to that promise. And he brought the overwhelming majority of Jewish people from Babylon back into the land of Judea to begin reconstruction of the holy city and to start um, God's covenant 2.0. We truly do worship a loving and patient God who longs to forgive his people when they repent of their sins. If I may build upon something that I said in the morning service, it is a sad fact that every single one of us has stood in the shoes of the Edomites at one point or another. We have been cruel to or have even taken advantage of fellow imagers of God, perhaps even fellow believers. And this is indeed a despicable crime worthy of judgment. And yet, if I may now spin us to the more positive side of the coin, ours is a kind, merciful, and gracious God who is always quick and delighted to extend forgiveness to his repentant children. I suppose I should pause to clarify. I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. When I say that our Lord forgives us upon our repentance, I don't mean forgiveness in the sense that you can somehow lose your salvation and then you have to re-earn it. 
Rather, I mean it in a similar sense to how a parent forgives a child who has misbehaved. The child never stops um, being a part of the family, and the parent never stops loving the child. But when the child recognizes that they have done something wrong, and they go up to mommy and daddy and they say, I was wrong and I'm sorry, the relationship is restored. In much the same way, let me state it very plainly, if the blood of Jesus has covered you, then you are a child of God, period. But we all sin against God every day. And the good news is that he rejoices when we recognize that and we repent of it. The Holy Spirit picks us up and helps us to continue living in a way that is pleasing to God. This leads us to our second point. We are motivated to action for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, despite what you might have heard from some sections of the evangelical world, the gospel is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not just afterlife insurance. Yes, the afterlife is obviously a huge part of the gospel, I won't deny that, but it also has implications for this life for how we live here and now. That's interesting. Um, (laughs) Excuse me, I wasn't expecting that. I spoke this morning about how Jesus... It's a good thing that I'm almost done because I have a feeling that's going to keep happening. Let me finish up here. I spoke this morning about how Jesus brought the kingdom of God to earth 2,000 years ago. And as we have seen from a book even as obscure as the book of Obadiah, God intends to see that kingdom spread across the whole earth. Christians in every generation, and that includes us, we all have the privilege of participating in the building of that kingdom. We have the privilege of playing a small part in a story that is so big and so vast that it goes far beyond the scope of even an entire lifetime. May we take the exhortation and the encouragement that come from the book of Obadiah today. May we take those things into our daily lives in this coming week. May we rest in the forgiveness that is ours And may we be motivated by that gracious forgiveness to lay a brick or two in the kingdom that will never end. Let me pray for us. Good and gracious King. Good and gracious Redeemer. You have been so kind as to include us in your story. You spoke through the prophet Obadiah some 2,500 years ago with a message that you care about how your people treat fellow imagers, especially if they're fellow believers, but even if they're not. You call us to live by a certain standard. You call us to bring the good words of life, the good news of Jesus Christ to all the world. You've given us the privilege of playing a part in that story, of helping to build 
the kingdom. May we glory in that. May we rest in your forgiveness. May our hearts be pricked so that we will remember not to be an Edomite. That we will treat our fellow imagers well, that we will spread your good news, and that we may have comfort even when there isn't success. We may know that you have seen the end of things. You have decreed that your kingdom will succeed. And may we always keep that in our minds. May we have that end goal in mind to keep motivating us, keep us living to please you and living to expand your kingdom. Through the name of our great king, our great high priest, Jesus Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, we pray.